So tonight I'd like to reflect a little bit on the theme of space and where that fits into our practice, our life. So in the Buddha Dharma, you, broadly speaking, you can say you see two approaches um, to liberation, if we speak very broadly here. One approach that is more normally found in the Theravada and more common in the insight meditation tradition is where we're pointing to and meditating on and looking deeply into experiences, right? We're asked to pay attention to experience, to understand its nature, to understand that there's actually nothing there that we can cling to and make our lasting home. So we study experience not to become experts at experience, but to see that experience itself cannot give us the home we seek. Because it's with experience where we get snagged. Any, of course, very obvious really, any issue, any problem, any place we've ever been caught, it's because we're taking hold of some experience. It's where we get snagged, where we get hooked. The other approach is to point directly at the nature of the mind that is already free. The nature of mind that is not obscured or bound or confined or limited that is also right here and now, pointing directly to that. That on one level it's not something that we have to, you know, go on and on studying experiences to see. It's something that can be seen right here and now. And both of these orientations have their strengths and weaknesses, of course. Very broadly speaking, the weakness or where we can get lost in the path that points directly to the nature of the liberated mind is that we can get a little bit spaced out. We can get a little bit, we might feel a little bit spacious, but then we can be a little bit lost and not quite specific and clear with exactly what's happening. And the downside of always pointing to experience, to look in deeply to experiences, is that we keep looking into experiences and don't let them go. Right? Somebody, it was very interesting. It's um, somebody today was uh, speaking to. She said, "I'm understanding something about the nature of my aversion and my grasping in terms of this kind of grasping and this kind of aversion." Right. Both are grasping from, in Buddhist language, right? But the one where we're pushing against or we're wanting to pull something towards us. And she said, I'm, I'm really understanding. I see what's happening with my family and what's happening with uh, the people that I kind of go towards. And she was looking really happy and excited. And, and, and she wanted to know how to develop that, how to go f- forward with that, how to keep exploring that, which of course... We want to do. Of course, these things take time, the unfolding of patterns, etc., etc. And I said to her, Anne, what happens right now when you, when you notice 
the effect of seeing this, because she was looking very happy, speaking about understanding aversion and grasping. She said, oh, actually, I feel relieved. Doesn't mean the pattern's all over. Doesn't mean it's going to be roses every time she knocks on the front door of her family. Right? But she said, actually, I feel relieved. And I said, and what's that like? And she said, actually, there's a lot of space here right now in my chest. Right? She said, oh, that's very interesting. She said, I was kind of moving forward with the, the understanding, like how am I going to apply this? And that is a relevant inquiry. But sometimes we can do that and miss what is already right here, And in this case, it was manifesting as space, a lot of space in her chest, a lot of relief, a lot of opening that was already available right here. So tonight I want to reflect on space, as I said, and maybe with the intention of supporting us to recognize the space that is already here, actually, in in many, many different dimensions, but a spacious aspect of our nature that is already here. So uh, some months ago, a friend stayed at my house, a Dharma friend, and he left a National Geographic magazine for me, and it was called Space, and I got really excited Space, obviously, is a very big feature in the spiritual path. It's something that we want to understand. It's place in the, in the journey. So I thought, great, National Geographic about space. I wonder how they do that. You know, how, do they, how do they show photographs of space? How do you, normally in National Geographic, it's really colourful things, right? Interesting colourful people and things. How are they going to take pictures of space? Because space doesn't stand out, does it? Like if you right now look into how you're perceiving things, it's very likely that you're noticing me, right? And that I'm a human with legs and arms and a face and a voice. It might be less apparent that actually at least on this, even on this visual outer level, this room is actually mostly space, even on a visual level, even on the seeing level. We tend to notice when we come in the meditation hall, many people, not everyone, not all the time, how many people are in here. Right? And if you've been on retreats with less people, you might come into the New Year's retreat and think, oh, it's really crowded. It's really crowded in here, not much space. Right? But actually, if you take a look, it doesn't take much to just shift the perspective and notice. Actually, there's more space in here than there are people. And actually, in practice, if you really look into people, they also show up to be an awful lot of space as well. So I got really excited and imagined it was going to be like page after page of black pictures. like... <laughs> So I opened it, and then in the beginning, you know, there's really, really amazing far-out things you find in space, like whatever that is. 
<laughs> right, one of those. Right. And, um, you know, one of these, one of these guys. You find sometimes them in space as well. But if you think of outer space, just outer space for now, can you see that? It's the head of a, an American astronaut in his... Actually, it's a very cool picture. And it, but, yeah, you can have a look at it on Sunday if you like. But, um, if you think of outer space, he's actually going to be one very, very small part of outer space. So there was him and some words, and there's some very cool pictures of you know, things like... Things like that. Right, I don't know if you can see, but some very, very, very lovely pictures. And I was leafing through thinking, right, when are they going to get to the space? <laughs> right? And I got all the way to the end, and you know, there's even one of those. And it's, and it's very cool. Right? But it's like, okay, when are they going to get to the space? And I got all the way to the end, and it was nothing about space. It was about all the things in space. <laughs> <laughs> and I was really... Uh, felt a bit cheated actually it's like oh okay yeah there are some very very cool things in space and that tends to be what we notice right out there and in here not always cool things in here right but the things that stand out the things that stand out And because things stand out, because certain experiences do make more of an impression, like those pictures, National Geographic pictures really make an impression. Because they make an impression, it's where our attention goes and it's where we usually start to get very busy. We don't necessarily open or we're not necessarily um, trained, actually, to recognize the space. So how are you in the meditation, in the retreat, in the being here, when there isn't so much going on, when there aren't big nebulae to attend to or spacemen or big experiences happening, difficult experiences, lovely experiences? How is that when... There's more space. Do you like it? Do you not like it? Are you wondering if you've even had any space at this point? It can be very interesting. We can think that we are attracted to space. You know, we use the language. don't know if you are familiar with hearing yourself <coughs> thinking. You know, feel crowded in by things. You think, I need more space. Get out of my space. You're in my space. Give me more space. We can think we want it, but our relationship to it, it can be very mixed, can be very ambivalent. How are you at home when you have a day with nothing to do in it. 
You don't have to go to work. You don't have to see anybody. You wake up in the morning. The day kind of looms ahead in front of you as empty space. (coughs) Is that a lovely prospect? Or do you find yourself picking up the telephone? Or... I think I remember one woman here telling me, she said, she, she does not let herself, in her schedule, have a day with nothing in it. It's too terrifying for her. She makes sure that it's, each hour is clearly accounted for in advance, so that it's clear what she'll be doing, what's defining her, where she'll be, where she'll be who she'll be with. Because as we open into more space, as we let the space become from being implicit in our experience to being more explicit, lots of things can start to show themselves to us that we haven't seen before. So if I was to have asked myself some years ago when I first came to practice do you want to understand and have more space? I would have said yes. But I remember not long having moved, not long after having moved to Devon, and um, I think I was still a Guy House coordinator at the time, a long time ago, and I went to Totnes for a pizza. And I, I was from the city, I'm from South London, and there wasn't you know, of course, there's actually lots of space if you look up, but if you look that way, there's not that much space. <coughs> and coming to Devon felt, you know, very rural, which it is. And sitting in this pizza restaurant, the high street, for those of you who don't know, in Totnes, it's like a hill like that. There used to be this little pizza restaurant about there. And I was sitting in it having a pizza, and I was with someone. And I'd never suffered from uh, any phobias as far as I was aware. But I started to have the sense of, oh, I wonder if this is like agoraphobia. That's the fear of space, right? Fear of too much space. So this kind of discomfort, sort of discomfort. And I said to the person, I feel kind of uncomfortable. And they said, well, what is it? And I said, well, if you go 100 yards that way, just beyond it is empty space. And if you go 150 yards that way, both my markers were where the shops ended, of course. If you go 150 yards that way, just beyond that, it's empty space again. And it was this kind of horrible feeling that there was nothing to contain me, nothing to kind of define me, hold me in, let me know, at least, you know, when you're surrounded by loads and loads of things. In, in my conditioning, then you had some sort of way of testing yourself, knowing you were here knowing I was here. For others, it's different, actually. They feel very much at home in nature and in open space. They can relax. They can open into that dimension and start to intuit and sense very much more space. But then they come in the meditation hall and feel claustrophobic. Right? There's too many things in my space. And we can easily... Think then that to find space, to find the space where the promise of rest or the promise of whatever is the promise there means getting all the things out of the space. And it's often what we do. I don't know if uh, any of you have had a similar experience, but when I first had that 
un- that wish to cultivate more space. Coming back from travelling in Asia and coming back to my parents' house and, okay, I'm going to get rid of everything in my bedroom. Get rid of all my possessions. Get rid of the bed. Right? I did. I got rid of the bed. Right, I'm going to get rid of everything, even my guitar. I gave it, gave it to someone. Right, okay, I want more space. And actually, that can be a beautiful, beautiful thing to do, right, to actually know what it's like to not be defined by our things and our possessions. In my case, it was a little extreme, but there was more space, more space on the level that I could at first understand that, there was more space. So what do you notice for yourself around space? It doesn't even have to remain as an idea. It can be right here and now, on the level of the visual. There's a lot of space here. Sometimes it's, well, so what? Nothing much here for me. I'm going to get back to to working hard and I'm going to get back to my meditation start working hard <clears throat> we're sometimes ambivalent when things don't give us the messages that are on our template our blueprint of what we're used to the blueprint of how I know myself and how I know my world space kind of doesn't necessarily figure into it. Somebody told me the other day that they were in a... Uh, they had opened, something had, had actually shocked them, had come in that was quite difficult, that they had opened to something and were feeling um, very here, a little tender and open and, and vulnerable with that. Kind of open, which is one of the aspects of space. We are actually open beings. Right, And then she said, and in that I noticed myself starting to scramble. Scramble to find something to define myself. Almost like you can start to see the mind going, okay, so what is it I am? Tell me. And she found herself landing up in a familiar identity that was actually a very painful one. But she could see that on some level... On some level, there was a preference for that. At least I know who I am now. It's a little bit much. It can feel a bit much sometimes to be so open. It reminds me of a um, cartoon. It's a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. Do you know Calvin and Hobbes? Everybody know Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> I think it's an American cartoon. And um, I don't really know Calvin and Hobbes. I just remember this one cartoon, so I don't even know which one's Calvin and which one's Hobbes. There's a little boy. He looks about seven. Is that Calvin? It's Calvin. <clears throat> it doesn't really matter, but that's Calvin. And he has a, a pet tiger, 
actually doesn't have a pet tiger. He has a stuffed toy who's a tiger. And, of course, in his little six-year-old mind, it sometimes is a real tiger, and they have all kinds of uh, adventures into the nature of reality, as far as I can work out. But anyway, this one cartoon, it's Calvin in front of the telly with his mum in the kitchen shouting at him, saying, Go outside and play. And he's staying with the telly and he shouts, No! And next, next shot, Go outside and play. Go outside. You know, it's good for you. The mother would try and get him outside. No! Then she goes and picks him up by the scruff of the neck. Go outside! And he's screaming, No! And the last frame, she kind of boots him outside the back door and he's out there and she said, Why not? And he said, It's too big! <laughs> It's like, ah, it's too big. It's too big. How is it if you go out at night from here after these few days of practice and look up into the night sky? Can you tolerate it? So it's kind of very attractive and romantic on one level. It's all oh, the night sky. You know. But how long can you hang out with it? Before you go, okay, right, that's enough of that. Time for bed. You might not even be tired. But it's like, yeah, night sky. It's very spiritual, lovely, off I go. Can you tolerate resting when something isn't necessarily calling so loudly? Or telling you who you are in a way that you already know? or telling you who you are in a way you'd like to be known, but that's something much quieter. One teacher has a nice phrase, I like it a lot. I think it's from Vimala Kirti, and she talks about tolerating the inconceivable. Right? Because we can't really conceive, we can't really wrap our little or big conceptual mind. I don't know if you've got a little conceptual mind or a big one. Whatever it is, they're all quite small on some level. To try and wrap that around the night sky. We can have all, you know, all the things we know about it in here. But can we tolerate what we don't know and start to rest there, start to recognize that, start to let that become more explicit? So I just want to reflect that we can look at the Four Noble Truths from this perspective, from the perspective of space. And when I do, when I reflect on it in that way, kind of the numbers change around a little bit. So the Third Noble Truth, which is about freedom, about the end of suffering, we could say that that freedom, which is an openness, complete openness, is much more fundamental to us than our clinging and our grasping and our bondage, actually. We just don't recognize it. So there is freedom, there is the end of suffering. But because we're not at home, we're not able to recognize we're not trained to see. We've kind of overlooked something very primary and fundamental 
about what we are. Right? This openness. Not quite at ease in that we cling to the nearest, loudest thing. And that's usually our mind, right? And its ideas and its theories and its philosophies, even great ones. And we think that's, we start to see the, perceive the world through that framework. So not quite at ease in that openness. We cling, that's the second noble truth, the truth of clinging. And the experience of having clung is of suffering, is of dukkha. The experience of taking ourself to be this confined and limited thing. When we reflect and set, we don't even have to sense into it, we know it. We know the experience of perceiving ourselves as separate, isolated, compacted, um, limited being is suffering, is dukkha. That's the first noble truth. So how does it strike you when I say that our nature, something much more fundamental to us, is an openness, is an openness. Openness, openness. And we will make whatever we do of the words, of course. (coughs) Right? But something open. Do you reflect and think, well, that's not me. That might be someone else, but that's not me. And what I want us to do, perhaps from this perspective of space, and I might, I might succeed in convincing you that actually you are open, it's just that we don't recognize that, that the question that usually we come to practice with is, how can I be free? How can I... Uh, yeah, how can I get free of the sense of bondage? From the other perspective, we can look at it and say, what is it that actually shuts down the openness? If what we are is open, and I'll get to that part, then in a way the question could equally be, what is it that seems to shut down this openness moment by moment by moment? So we had a very nice example yesterday that... As beings, human beings, our nature is open. In the staff dining room yesterday, one of the staff, Kathy, who's on maternity leave, she brought in her two small children. One of them is, I think, not quite two. And one of them is less than three months, I think. It's a very small baby in arms. And... Apparently it's a little quiet. Can you hear at the back? Okay, so just for the okay. Let's see. I don't know. Let me see. Is, is that better, Sue, if I speak up a little bit? Okay. Do that again if it starts to fade. <clears throat> so the first, the small baby, the three-month-old one, most of us will recognize in a small small one, that the nature is open, quite open, right? If you were to see him yesterday, I don't know when the last time each of you was with a three-month-old, but if we can be with such a one 
from a place of practice and reflection and presence, we can perceive something. And this little one was still in that very, very, very fluid state, right, where I I was allowed to hold him, right, holding this beautiful baby, and he's still in that very, right, don't know if you can see. I don't even know what it looks like, but <laughs> I don't think he did either. That's part of the point, right? It's this kind of nothing's very fixed yet, right? There's not even the sense that he's located in his head. You know that we get that with lots of adults, or you might even perceive it with yourself. It's actually I'm here. Okay, I can understand the emptiness of the rest of it, but I'm here, right? He's not even here. He's it's a whole thing that's very open, very fluid, right? That the gaze isn't even kind of fully kind of landed in his eyes. And the body's very fluid. So when he's suckling, he was suckling with his mum, full body there. When he was crying, which babies do, he was crying as well. Full, the full thing. It's the full thing, right to the toes. Right, the whole thing. It's this big openness through which experience is moving quite rapidly, actually. Not, it appears, a whole lot of clinging yet. Also not a whole lot of wisdom yet. We're not trying to get back there in our practice. Right? Very open. He doesn't know it yet. He doesn't know it. He hasn't gone through that whole mixed process that we all have of developing the extraordinary capacity to conceive and have concepts and ideas and knowledge. Which, when we get to practice, we can think it's a limitation, but we need that part. So his slightly bigger brother is already a little bit further along on the development. Right, So he's not walking around like that. He was Santa's little helper. And he had ears on, and a green hat, and a uniform, and a belt, and a sack. And he'd come to give all the staff (coughs) presents, right? It wasn't a big part of his identity. You could see that. He's only, he's not two yet. It wasn't a big job in terms of, uh, you know, some of us are a little bit more tight around our roles. You know, like, you know, if you all got up and walked out now, I might say, excuse me, you know, I'm the teacher, don't do that he was quite relaxed with being Santa's little helper but someone at one point as people do often with small children they said someone who actually knew the answer to the question said to him and what's your name right as I made made contact with him there's still a lot of space there's still a lot of openness he didn't answer immediately a lot of space in the mind it hasn't quite What's your name? Somebody said to him. And he kind of, you almost could see from this kind of big open space, he kind of, Thomas. (laughs) Right, he kind of found it. He found it. He found, that's it. And he'll have, I think it was Thomas, might have been Christopher, but whatever it was. He's got it. He's found what it is. Right, it's almost like plucked. And it's a relevant plucking. It's not an irrelevant plucking. It is his name. But it's not so 
it's not so fixed yet. Right? There's a lot of space in that mind. Again, he doesn't know that yet. It's not wisdom yet. But there's a lot of space there. And as we grow up, we develop that whole extraordinary function of that becomes more refined, that becomes more um, malleable, more versatile, till we... I was home last week. My mum's favourite program is University Challenge, right? And whoever it is now asks the question, right, Smith from Keeble, (laughs) the answer comes very bright, very fast, beautiful, beautiful, this faculty, beautiful faculty. But what happens for most of us is that that's then what we identify with. Our knowing whether we're smart or not smart, whether we know the answers or don't know the answers, still that framework of reflect of coming through into the world, knowing how it should be, knowing who I am, knowing who you are, knowing how Guy House ought to be, right? Very, very convinced with our knowing on some level. The Buddha said, develop a mind that is vast like space, where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. Develop a mind that is vast like space, where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. We might hear that and think, okay, I have to develop it. I have to develop it. And that's true, we do. It's somehow a lot of work, isn't it? Keeping showing up from our mind, our experience. And yet at the same time, the develop, we can't, you know, we don't create the space. The space is already here. We need to recognize where it is we get snagged, how that happens, what's going on that I get snagged and start to identify with a very, very small particular thing in this vast space we come to meditation and we initially I think what many of us see is that what appears to be crowding the space appears to be is all the thinking and we might say to ourselves if it wasn't for all the thinking then I'd have more space and we probably all of us tried all the strategies to try and push all the thinking away, to try and get more space. But there's still a misunderstanding. We're making it seem like there's space and then there's all the things in space. 
there's outer space and there's all this, you know, planets and solar systems and stars. That they're the thing in the way. And actually we're asked to keep looking. We keep asked to keep looking into the nature of experience because actually even in the most densest experiences, the thickest, thorniest thoughts, the most kind of dense and confined mind states, the appearance is that they close the space, but they don't. Space can't get closed down. It feels like that. It appears that way. But the space doesn't go anywhere. One of the things that Well, let's put it this way. If you're sitting there thinking that you haven't experienced any space, or you don't know space or can't relate to this, the first place to check out is that the space is, as I said, usually implicit. We don't necessarily recognize it. It's implicit. If you've had any moments here of something just a little bit new showing up in your experience, seeing yourself in a different way for a moment, or perceiving something in a slightly new way, or there's been enough kind of softening or releasing that it might not be something you wanted, but something that you haven't seen before shows up. This all implies space, and the insight shows that the space is actually alive and well. It's actually working just fine. Nothing new comes in when we're very, very fixed. Right? Nothing can be seen differently. It just may be that we haven't noticed the space explicitly. So what does the space reveal to us? One reflection I really like is that It's actually a lot of work to keep things fixed, to keep that sense of myself and the world very, very bound. It's a lot of work. It takes a kind of an incessant monologue to actually keep it together, right? Almost as if when we're, well, not almost as if, when we're not actually paying attention or what we actually can't yet perceive in our experience is almost constantly telling ourselves the story of who I am. I'm like this. I'm like this, I'm someone who's like this and I'm not like that. And there's a very peculiar way that we have of that actually being, seeming to be true. You know, the the classic example would be we have some idea about that, there's a monologue going on, we may not even hear it. Let's say that I'm hopeless, right? May not even be our primary identification, it might be a kind of a, quieter one and we come in the meditation hall and we open our eyes and everybody looks serene and beautiful and radiant except me 
And we're not seeing that actually we're seeing the world through that lens. I'm hopeless and there's the evidence. Everybody else is not hopeless and I am. One of the things we can both be attracted to about space and also ambivalent about is that as we start to open up a little bit more to space, we start to get the intimations that transformation is actually possible, even for me. And actually anything is possible, right? The sense of potentiality, the sense of... um, If I'm not limiting and confining something into a very particular, then actually anything could be possible here. Which sounds lovely on one level, but really, are you up for anything being possible? Right? And it's not to say this is not a random unfoldment either. There is, it's not a random um, path. But we can be a little scared sometimes by that sense that anything really here is possible. So one of my <clears throat> favorite examples of this is of a, a man who was a very ex- experienced meditator. Um, and I was just beginning and I was, it was probably about the same time I had the pizza um, on staff at the other guy house, which is, was in a village over there called Denbury a long time ago. And if you think this meditation hall doesn't have much space, you should have gone there. It's all very relative how we perceive those things. The meditation hall was a living room in an old vicarage. And when the retreat was full, which was 35 people, we were my nose to his back, like that, I think, whoever was in front of me. And um, I was sitting behind this very experienced man and I had respect and awe for his long years of practice. And I noticed that... I would open my eyes after a while, thinking, well, that's it. I could do 30 minutes. I'll just sit out the last 15, and that's who I am. Hadn't quite worked with that one yet. Opened my eyes, and this presence in front of me was doing this. And I thought, wow, that's, that's very cool. You know, that, that's, I, I'm not doing that yet. I I had a very pure and naive uh, something wow so maybe they'll teach me that one (laughs) and then when I went to the small group meeting which I was with him with him and a bunch of other people might have even been Christina was the teacher I'm not sure and so he was reporting, and he was looked really ashen. You know, he looked scared. He looked really scared. And he said, with a lot of sincerity, he said, I don't know what's going on. I'm really, really... Actually, I've forgotten one important part here. He was doing two things. He was doing this, and the other thing he was doing, his back was doing that as well right so it was doing that 
and it was doing that. So I could only see it from behind. Right, it was going. So anyway, he reported in the group, I'm very, very scared. He said, I'm a very dedicated, sincere practitioner. I've been practicing a long time. I'm really serious about this path. You know, I, I'm really serious. He said, but in the meditation, I can't stop laughing. <laughs> he goes, I can't stop laughing. I don't know what's going on. And we might say, well, how lovely. You know, things are opening up. And even laughter, and we would say anyone would want that, wouldn't they? Anyone would want the, the joy or the humor to come through. And we might think we would, but actually when it's something that's outside of our box, even the lovely, it can feel as if it, it shouldn't be there, right? It was outside his definition. It was literally outside of his box. Our boxes, and his box was that he was serious and dedicated, This was outside of his box. Our boxes take a lot of work to keep them closed. It takes that incessant monologue. And when we start listening, we can start to hear it. And if you've ever wondered where your mind is when you're not here, it's keeping your boxes nicely intact. That's why we pay attention. We can start to hear that monologue, start to see that it's empty, that there's much more possible for us. So how is it to consider that any of the small boxes that we've defined ourselves by so far this retreat, or any of the big boxes, we can get better boxes, right? There might be the sense I'm hopeless box, or there might be the sense of actually I'm pretty brilliant and doing just fine here, that's who I am. And then that box opens and then the next day we're not feeling so good. How is it to consider the potentiality of not having to close space up, even though space can never really be closed up. But how is it to consider that maybe we don't have to do that? How does it strike you to sense the potentiality of who and what you are? Which doesn't mean things won't pass through. Of course they do. There is a process. There may be things that need to come up for liberation to be allowed to rise in order to pass. But that we don't get so fixed with that that we miss the space that is here, that is much more fundamental. So how about we just have a couple of minutes not to change posture or do something but just to sit together with that sense of possibility of recognizing, absolutely recognizing the things that arise but not having to limit our gaze but to include perhaps what is not necessarily on our template, certainly won't be on our conceptual template, the blueprint of 
all our concepts and ideas. To rest in the room and firstly on the visual level, to open and include the whole experience of space that's here, to let it in, to rest with it. That the thoughts can arise in this space. But you don't have to go anywhere, you don't have to jump on the train. Listening to something more quiet that maybe doesn't call so loudly. And yet on some level can be known. Not known in the familiar way that we know things, perhaps. But nonetheless recognized, recognizable. And from that openness, we can start to look at the question, what is it that seems to close down the openness? How does that happen? We can follow it. We can see the whole thing take place. Develop a mind that is vast like space, where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle or harm. Rest in a mind like vast sky. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.